Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. Today, we're talking about China and specifically China's relationship with its own history. A history that, as we will learn, has been rewritten several times by those in power, often to serve the ends of the Chinese Communist Party. To discuss this, I'm joined by Tanya Brannigan, a Guardian leader, writer and author whose excellent book, Red Memory, Living, Remembering and Forgetting China's Cultural Revolution, is out now. And Isabel Hilton, who is a contributing editor here at Prospect, but more importantly, founder of China Dialogue and a writer and broadcaster closely attuned to modern day China. So let's start by looking back. Tanya, your book, which Isabel's covered in the current issue of Prospect, focuses on a very specific moment in China's history, the Cultural Revolution of 1966 to 1976. I think many people have some idea of the events of those years. But can you briefly explain why that moment was so important in China's history and why you made it the focus of your book? It's really the pivotal moment in modern China, the point at which it moves away from Maoism and towards this much more individualistic and market-focused society. So it really is the turning point. It's also just a a vast trauma. And clearly, while China had been through many of those over the last century or so, it's such a potent one, one which has shaped its leaders uh, and its citizens, and one which in many ways seemed to me to be everywhere and yet at the same time nowhere, because it's really not spoken of very much through both official repression and also through personal trauma. So it's this very strange moment. And because it's universal in a way that some of the other traumas perhaps were not, uh, because it touches every family in the land and it stretches from the most powerful political leaders right down to families in the countryside, infants even in some cases being killed, this political movement uh, becomes something that really transforms the whole of Chinese society and changes the way that people think about their personal relationships, tears away at that trust people have as uh, husbands turn on wives and colleagues and friends turn upon each other. And for all those reasons, I think it's incredibly potent and it really is impossible to understand China today without understanding it. 
Isabel, is that a sentiment that matches with your experience? I think they're hugely important. When I first went to China as a student, the Cultural Revolution was still on. And it was the the violent phase was was over, but the, the people who had led the Cultural Revolution, the Gang of Four, so... Jiang Qing, Mao's wife, and, and three political colleagues were very much in charge of the party. And the party had been destroyed in the Cultural Revolution and rebuilt as a sort of um, tool of Mao Zedong. Uh, so there were uh, re- Cultural Revolution committees were in charge of tertiary education, which was just beginning to open up again. All universities had been had been closed. You know, there, there was a suspension of, of, of pretty much everything in that sector. It was just beginning to um, open up again, but under new management, as it were. Mm-hmm. And the and the ideology of the Cultural Revolution, which by then was a very kind of narrow um, authoritarian vision, which, which affected culture, it affected speech, it affected what you could write in your university essays, for example. Um, it affected your perspective on pretty much everything. That was very, very strong then. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until Mao died that um, the party then had to think about, you know, what this period had meant and when Deng Xiaoping who was one of the chief um, victims if you like he was mm-hmm. he was uh, attacked in the cultural revolution by Mao as a as me, uh, one of the people in the party bent on taking the capitalist road in that felicitous uh, expression um, turned out actually a fair a fair point he did want to take the capitalist road uh, but Mao didn't but when he came back there was a an extraordinary moment, um, a decade really, of, of suppressed ideas all breaking surface. Mm. But the party itself had to grapple with the meaning of this without dethroning Mao. And that mm. remains, you know, a, a, a core to what Tanya's writing about, which is the manipulation of history, the suppression of history at an individual and a collective level. And what happens then? What's the relationship of the individual to the state, to the party? To, to the individual's own past. In, in your essay in Prospect, you mentioned something that you call scar literature, which you describe sort of unhappy reminiscing. Just after the Cultural Revolution, it was a, it was a kind of collective group therapy where people uh, did have this period of writing about, you know, how I suffered in the Cultural Revolution. What you didn't get was how guilty I was in the Cultural Revolution, which again comes out in, 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 in Tanya's book, that because this involved everybody. People were victims, yes, but they were also perpetrators. And the perpetrators, you know, carry their own trauma um, and this breakdown of trust. So, yes, there was a period in, in, in of scar literature. There was also a period of, of um, very open debate around democracy wall in mm-hmm. Beijing in the late 70s that got closed down eventually by Deng Xiaoping. But it was a kind of reflowering of the big character poster, which was one of the one of the you know big features of the cultural revolution so people would paste these enormous essays up on walls and then crowds would gather they would debate mm. them and in democracy wall that was one of the very interesting moments when people looked back at what had happened and tried to look forward to a different future yeah that's that's really interesting and i'd love to know tanya from you about the kind of sources that you drew on for your book so you're talking to people who are now middle-aged but were young at the time and discussing their memories of this period but there's also these kind of physical monuments to the time whether it's any of these walls i don't know if they, they, any of them are still there i imagine not the or the kind of institutional memories and museums and monuments and that kind of thing could you tell us a little bit more about 
about the sources that you drew on to discuss memories of this time? There are very few physical traces, precisely because the authorities really don't want to dwell on this time. And in fact, even though Deng Xiaoping insisted that it was addressed, that there was an official verdict which called it a catastrophe, even at the point that he was asking for that document to be drafted, he stressed that it was all about looking forward uniting people and looking to the future. In other words, it wasn't about sitting around saying this terrible thing's happened and we've got to remember it so it doesn't happen again. It was serving a function of allowing the party to move on, uh, to retain Mao, as Isabella has said, uh, and to go in a different direction, clearly, uh, towards the market, but at the same time politically for the party to remain very clearly in charge. So the party has always policed very carefully what can be remembered, and that's particularly the case with the Cultural Revolution. Um, It's become increasingly the case under Xi Jinping, so he has talked about historical nihilism. Uh, And very soon, actually, after taking power, he really portrayed that as being an existential threat to the party, on a par with things like Western constitutional democracy, There's now also a a hotline, for example, for people to call up and denounce examples of historical nihilism, should they wish to. So it has been difficult to remember the Cultural Revolution, and it's become much more so. Uh, The Cultural Revolution Museum that I visit in the book initially had a bit more leeway, and eventually, as it became popular... It was sort of erased from Chinese media and then they had to take their signposts down and then most recently it was basically shut down. Um, Where the Cultural Revolution has lived on has been through the remarkable research done by many Chinese scholars both within and without the country, increasingly outside and certainly being published outside as, as time has gone on and the subject has become more sensitive in many ways. Uh, And also, I think it's there often in ways that people can't quite define. And this was one of the things that I found so extraordinary and so challenging that it's there just below the surface. And that's really why I wrote this book, because it kept coming up every time I sort of did a topic. You know, if you wanted to understand uh, why a tycoon had become an entrepreneur, it really kind of went back to the Cultural Revolution and this feel uh, feeling that individual struggle was the only way to sort of survive and prosper and that you didn't shouldn't think about sort of political values anymore because that was essentially meaningless or you spoke to a family and those sort of fractured family relationships that were really rooted in their experiences of the cultural revolution were there very vividly so I think quite often as well in China it's there in ways that people can't quite define or put their finger on and may only address obliquely but it's very deeply written into people's into society and people's experience and people's psychology. I mean, as we've said, it's this is still recent history. The people who experienced this are still middle-aged members of society. Do you think that the presence of that memory will endure in decades to come? Or does that die with the people who experienced it firsthand? I don't think we know yet, actually. I think what's striking is that so many people who lived through that time have wanted to leave a testament, first of all, in the scar literature, uh, as Isabel says, and then in the research and the sort of extraordinary histories that have been written by people like Yang Jisheng, for example, uh, and then in the people who wanted, uh, in the period where I was researching this book, to talk about what had happened 
to apologise, to take responsibility for their roles in some cases. And I think that was partly a function of age, um, of reaching the age sometimes of their victims, of looking at their children and grandchildren and a sense that this needed to be recorded. And then also, I think, more recently, we've seen people becoming concerned that the echoes of the Cultural Revolution are growing louder in some ways. Not that we're seeing a repetition, but that we can certainly see growing parallels between China today uh, and those cultural revolution instincts. And that's something that came less from my interviewees, but certainly from other people within Chinese society, from scholars and even in the most recent COVID zero protests where we had people holding up signs saying reform, not the cultural revolution. Isabel, what are your thoughts on the parallels that we see today, as, as Tanya mentioned? Well, as Tanya explained, Xi Jinping's politics are very different from Deng Xiaoping's politics. And we've seen a repoliticization of many aspects of Chinese society, including education, including culture, including bureaucracy, if you like, where people are once again having to having to attend, you know, political meetings which essentially sing the praise of the leader. You know, we've got the leader's thought embedded in the constitution. Um, speeches have to refer to the leader. Private entrepreneurs. Um, there was an interesting um, piece in the, in the Economist some time back which was counting the number of references to the great leader Xi Jinping which were made by private entrepreneurs and they'd gone up by, you know, several hundred percent. And people just, you know... In China, people can smell the wind. They know what's required of them when there is a moment of, uh, or a passage of high ideology, and they conform. And there's a level of performative politics in China that you learn to recognise. I was very, very familiar with it from my first time around. And it went away as people could be themselves. They had much more personal liberty. Politics was in retreat. Essentially, Deng Xiaoping said to people, if you stay out of politics, you can just do business, get rich, all that kind of thing. Life will get better. That has really gone into reverse. Politics is back in a major way. And the other, I think, important thing to note from the from the history perspective is that I think it was pretty much the practice that people regarded the first 30 years of, of the People's Republic of China, which included, you know, the anti-rightist movement, it included the Hundred Flowers movement, it included the Great Leap Forward with, with you know, tens of millions of deaths of, from starvation and the Cultural Revolution as not the greatest time in Chinese history. Um, and, and, and from, you know, the death of Mao, there was a recognition that there began China's kind of moment of, you know, recovery, of, of rising to greatness, claiming its, its role in the world and so on. What Xi Jinping has done is to say these are not separate periods. These are seamless periods in which the party was always right. And you think, okay, this is problematic. You know, mm. if the party can't acknowledge mistakes, even a mistake as egregious as the Cultural Revolution, very qualified acknowledgement, Mao, who was the instigator of it, not not really, you know, not really suffering in reputational terms. You know, that's where we are sort of heading back. It's not the Cultural Revolution, but there are very, very familiar elements now. Mm which had just been absent. What do we know about the importance of the Cultural Revolution in sort of Xi Jinping's own story and his route to power and where he is now? Well, he's turned his own story. And of course, his father uh, was persecuted in the Cultural Revolution, regarded... He was accused, funnily enough, of being a spy for uh, for Russia. 
which at the time was an enemy. Uh, now his son and Putin are best friends and uh, and being a spy for Russia might not be such a bad thing. Um, but the the family, you know, the, his father was 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 sent off, and Xi Jinping himself, as a young teenager, was sent to a particularly. Um, difficult part of China in the Lurs Plateau, you know, where, where essentially it's sort of cave-dwelling villages in, in, you know, perfectly, as it were, comfortable caves. But this is not the most prosperous or the most uh, or the easiest part of China. And he's managed to turn this into a founding myth of himself as being at one with the people able to endure hardships, rising above them to, you know, get into the party and become the great leader. So that involves a lot of suppression of detail, too, I have to say. Um, so he's turned the Cultural Revolution into his, you know, personal story quite effectively. Mm -hmm. It's now um, a place where people can visit. One of the few cultural revolution sites which are okay to visit is the place where Xi Jinping served his time as a sent down. I mean, it is fascinating that, as as you say, it's the one part of the cultural revolution that the state is not only willing to talk about, but sort of has actively embraced by depoliticising it in this rather weird way. But what's also striking about that, I think, is that it partly came from the grassroots. So there was already this sort of nostalgia movement uh, of these 17 million teenagers who'd been sort of sent down into rural exile, utterly miserable lives. I mean, many of them didn't come back. Um, There was already a sort of nostalgic embrace of that by quite a lot of them. And when you speak to them, it's fascinating because they say, oh, it was terrible. It was miserable. You know, I'm not sure there was anything good about that time, but they've also embraced that and found a sort of meaning, uh, a sense of purity, of values, of equality. And I think that really points to the fact that history everywhere is always as much, or the way people feel about the past is always as much about what's happening today, what's going on, as it is about what the past was actually like. And so there are many people in China who, despite all its horrors, actually feel intensely nostalgic for the Cultural Revolution and see it as being a time of greater equality, of greater meaning, despite the fact that the political meanings were, of course, constantly shifting at that point. Um, Perhaps sort of greater solidarity. It's, It's hard for us to understand, but I think it reflects those frustrations with the way that breakneck growth, while it had brought so many benefits and in many ways so much personal freedom, also came at a real cost in terms of uh, the sort of glaring inequality, the huge corruption that people saw, the fact that there were sort of so many migrant workers who were, yes, raising their families' fortunes, but were only doing it by working hundreds or thousands of miles away and perhaps not seeing their family for a year or two at a time. So although it's definitely curated and encouraged by the state, there's also a real sort of genuine widespread nostalgia there as well. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. 
Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I think that's a really important point. Some of the manifestations that, um, that I noticed, which are also in, uh, in Tanya's book, are the role of, of uh, collective song. Uh, you get in, in the parks in Beijing over many years, you would notice middle-aged groups getting together to sing. Mm-hmm. And the songs they were singing were the songs of their youth, which were Cultural Revolution songs. And they found a kind of, you know, that was an act of memory, an act of solidarity, an act of trying to recapture, you know, the the, the, the feelings that they had then, which I, I, I think what Tanya said about the, the idea of purity and of purpose was very important. Because after the 80s, shall we say, when there was a lot of discussion about, you know, the meaning of, of politics and the meaning of the Cultural Revolution, it pretty much got shut down in favour of, of money. And then you have people really looking for meaning. They'd been, they had committed themselves to something which was overwhelming, the Cultural Revolution. Then they'd been told, no, not that, you know, then they'd been told, okay, you can think about other things. And then, no, you can't. So people were kind of trying to fill their lives with something which gave a kind of purpose to life. So you get things like Falun Gong, for example, uh, which is a rather odd religious movement, which became hugely popular. 100 million followers, more than followers, more than members of the party. That was suppressed. And you get a, re- a revival of many kinds of religion. Um, and now the party is trying to fill that void with a new ideology, a repurposed Marxism, Leninism, Mao Zedong and Xi Jinping thought, uh, which is substantially based on truculent nationalism. Mm -hmm. So the most passionate feelings that you encounter in China today politically tend to be, you know, uh, complaints about how everything bad that happened in China is the fault of the West and we must stand up to the West and we must hunt out the traitors within and the and the you know the the non compliant usually non han people um so that action reaction and further reaction st- is still playing out and it's a really key moment i think yeah. To understand the Cultural Revolution through that lens one of the issues that we have heard an increasing amount in recent years in that regard is the treatment of Uyghur and other other minority groups within the Xinjiang region what was the experience for them in the Cultural Revolution? There were Red Guards amongst the minorities, but largely it was roaming Red Guards going to Xinjiang, going to Tibet and attacking. I mean, any old beliefs, anything yeah. religious was subject to attack. So in on the mainland, but also in, in the minority areas where they were perhaps deeply rooted in people's mm-hmm. lives uh, and in beliefs. Yes, and just to add to that, I mean, in many cases, it was minorities who particularly suffered, for example, in Inner Mongolia, so, saw really brutal purges there in pursuit of a sort of political party which no longer existed in fact but many many people were killed and persecuted in that period Mm -hmm. and and in the intervening years how did these minorities handle that process of of memory we've talked about this the scarlet sure were they part of that well in tibet there was there was a lot of rebuilding so one one of the figures who was released um at the end of the cultural revolution uh, was the second most important figure in the galupa um uh 
a group of, of Tibetan Buddhists, and he was the Panchen Lama. He was sort of number two, as it, as it were, to the Dalai Lama. And uh, he'd been imprisoned for um, complaining to the leadership about starvation and the Great Leap Forward. So he'd been, you know, he'd been locked away a long time. When he was let out, it hit that moment at the beginning of the 80s of liberalism. <coughs> and he made a huge effort to uh, help rebuild uh, the enormous religious establishment in Tibet, which had been reduced largely to rubble. So a lot of rebuilding of monasteries and temples. Um, very, I think similar things happened in, in Xinjiang. Certainly mosques that had been closed were reopened. So there was that period of, of tolerance, uh, that decade, which was very important. But now what you have is just a fundamental change of policy towards assimilation, mm-hmm. um, whereas previously it was much more of a Soviet-style kind of policy where minority cultures and languages were allowed a certain degree of autonomy, though it was always rather limited. Now it's straightforward assimilation. Um, and, and Tanya, so when we when we think about the parallels now with the Cultural Revolution, it feels from over here that Xi Jinping's attempt to promote the new ideology again based on his own thinking, based on the thinking of previous communist leaders. How effective would you say that his attempt to rewrite history is how is it how is it going for a man with extreme sort of technological capacities with the arms of now a 21st century state to to observe what people are saying and indeed control yes i mean it's building on a sort of long tradition you might say in the communist party of uh, monitoring history and wanting people to recall the history in certain terms Um, and then the ideal of uh, nationalism, of China uh, being a story of the Communist Party freeing the people from foreign humiliation is one that then gets uh, a real boost after 1989 and the bloody brutal crackdown on the democracy protesters then, the massacre of so many people. Um, That's the point at which the party starts promoting very strongly this nationalist tale of the Communist Party saving the people um, because it no longer has the sort of the old ideal of serving the people really. The Cultural Revolution and the 1989 experience combined saw that off. So it turned to a story of both economic success and nationalism and then of course as the years of untrammeled growth have gone um, nationalism has become more and more central as Isabel said and particularly under Xi Jinping and there's this sort of smoothing out of history in which things aren't necessarily removed but you sort of gloss over certain parts Um, you certainly shut down alternative sources of information so we've seen archives being shuttered Um, we've seen popular discussions of history on the internet or uh, history publications being taken over closed down so yes I mean I think it has been effective in many ways and there were already many young people who really don't have a clue what happened in the cultural revolution except in the most general terms Um, often people having a vague idea of it as being turmoil and therefore bad, which is actually something that the party, when it has allowed people to talk about it, has has found quite useful, this idea that it shows you that you can't have young people running wild expressing their views, I suppose. Um, it's used as a sort of bogeyman, and in a way, precisely because people don't really know what happened, it becomes a rather amorphous thing, and the party can just say, well... 
Of course, if you let everybody speak freely, this is the kind of thing that happens, but without letting people go into any detail about just what it was that did happen. Um, I think what's interesting in some ways is that that narrative then becomes harder to sustain if you're not talking about it and it's not within so many people's memories. And so there are now sort of younger people who really don't even have an idea, much idea of it at all, and perhaps see it much as many people in the West might actually. They sort of know vaguely it was a bit violent and they think it was a bit kitschy because they've seen sort of extracts from the um, model operas of the time and so forth, but they really don't have much understanding beyond that. But I will say that memory also kind of comes through the cracks in some ways so that there are many people who will say I know something terrible happened to my family but I don't know what it was or you know I know my grandfather suffered but he won't talk about it so for some people there is an awareness through sort of personal history and family history that there is something there that doesn't fit with the official narrative. And what kind of space is there for anyone in China to take hold of those moments um and kind of create more of a discussion. Is there any possibility of that at all within China itself? I think it's very limited now. I mean, one of the interesting things to me, when I sort of started working on the book, there was a university professor, for example, who was told that he could not teach a a course called The Cultural Revolution, uh, but he was then allowed to teach a course which was called Chinese Culture 1966-76, to which, of course, are the dates of the Cultural Revolution, and anybody within China would would know that. So there was a sort of tolerance. Um, again, there were publications like Annals of the Yellow Emperor, which, although it sounds rather antiquated, was actually publishing these very bold pieces on sort of modern Chinese history, uh, really all done by people who had been within the system, former state media editors and writers and so forth, who'd then wanted to tell sort of more of the true story. And there was a space for that. That space has just shrunk and shrunk, really, in recent years. And so it only appears in the most tangential ways now. But I think the work that's done by the diaspora and the work that's published abroad will be really important in keeping those memories alive. Isabel, do you think it's easier or more challenging now for Xi Jinping to rewrite history compared to his predecessor? Well, first of all, you have to want to do it. Um, and and he certainly has accumulated the power to do it. Um, there's a price to pay, but he can he can do it. Uh, he can, um, as, as Tanya said, he can close archives. He can, you know... Um, Mao Zedong once boasted of of the number of scholars that that the party had had killed. Um, He's not, Xi Jinping isn't killing scholars, but he's silencing them. And people lose their jobs if they they take the wrong line. So yes, you can do it uh, for a while. But, you know, as we see from from Tanya's book, memory memory hides in lots of places. And it's quite difficult to erase memory entirely when uh, for an event that involved the entire nation and it comes out in i was reading a novel uh, recently in which and you know the story was that something terrible had happened to you know an, a a young man in in the in the in the 60s and this had affected the entire family history from then and you think well of course this is a cultural revolution analogy it's a cultural revolution story so it's still people are still trying to explore it because mm-hmm. it left so many scars and actually you know if you think about the chinese political leadership uh, anyone Xi Jinping's age 
went through the Cultural Revolution. That meant that they had a very interrupted education. It meant that they were living through prolonged periods of fear and violence and worry about, you know, what was happening to their parents when they were still young. It meant it must have left a legacy of mistrust, which goes very deep. You know, it's it's worse than being at a Tudor court, being a, a senior member of the Communist Party. You never know what might happen to you tomorrow. And I think that those scars, which I'm, I very much doubt have ever been addressed or remedied or discussed are very much present in, in the political leadership. And I, th- I think, I mean, that's what's most fascinating in some ways, isn't it? That she, who'd been through this very painful period himself, who'd seen his family persecuted, his half-sister killed herself, we believe, under political pressure. His father and other senior party leaders, when they were rehabilitated, went to great lengths to try and cage power um, and institutionalise, especially collectivise power and prevent there being any future strongman who might be capable of doing these things again. Uh, she's response has really been to tear down those safeguards. I mean, he's now leader indefinitely. That idea of collective leadership is for the birds. Um, so his experience of the Cultural Revolution appears to have been really one that has taught him not to control power in the sense of caging power but to ensure simply that you are the one with the power and hoard it rather jealously. Mm -hmm. Which perhaps suggests an element of circularity about where China will go in the next decade, in the next 20 years and how those who are currently oppressed will view the actions of Xi's government now. I think it's always very hard for us to know what judgments the future is going to pass on the present. But I think there are certainly people now who, as I said, have drawn comparisons. So we've seen a very bold scholar, for example, talked about a personality cult re-emerging a few years ago, uh, for which he lost his job, um, unsurprisingly. And then we've seen, as I said, protesters kind of drawing parallels or or seeing comparisons there. So I was struck again with um, COVID that people in China seem to have seen the real um, reintroduction, reinsertion of the state into these parts of personal life that it had retreated from. Suddenly people feel as if the state is not just on your doorstep, but is sort of right there in your home with you in in a way that people hadn't seen before. So I think there is a little bit of a reassessment now, but it's very hard to know which narratives will be strongest, which narratives will take hold and, and thrive in the future. I think it's important too to see the distinction between today's situation and the Cultural Revolution. You know, the Cultural Revolution began because Mao had been marginalised and he was mobilising elements outside the party to attack the party in order to get control again. So, And that was the long, painful, violent process that he went through. Xi Jinping came to power in the party, you know, through the usual channels. He also had a rectification um, campaign, which which in some ways still continues, uh, which took the form of an anti-corruption mm-hmm. drive, and that meant that he could identify and purge pretty much all you know all opposition within the party to him. He could break up rival power centres and all of that kind of thing, and he. Uh, but this also involved you know remaking the party's image for the people because I think it was true that at the end of the Hu Wen era, the the immediate predecessors of Xi Jinping, you know, it was a pretty liberal time, but it was also a pretty corrupt time. So 
you know, launching an anti-corruption drive resonated with people. And he presents it as, you know, the party getting back to its true purpose of serving the people, beating the wicked foreigner, making China great again, all of that. So he's recreated the notion of the party serving the people for the present day Mm -hmm. and himself as the, you know, supreme leader uh, directing that. So, you know, he's using some of the tools, the political rectification, the, the, the elevation of his thought to sort of holy writ, all of that. Those are definitely elements that, that we all remember from the Cultural Revolution. But the process isn't a parallel. So we can't, we can't look at the Cultural Re- Revolution and say, oh, well, this is the way it's going to go. It's, it, these are different times. Absolutely. And in terms of that love of disruption that Mao had, you'd have to say that a figure like Trump was a much more Maoist figure in that sense than Xi Jinping is. That's an interesting idea to almost round off on. Just one more thought before we do. This idea of rewriting history and authoritarian states going through that process to to silence critics, shut down archives is something that we've seen in other authoritarian states. We've seen it in Russia, of course, unfolding in recent years as well. Is this something that authoritarian states always do and always will do? I think particularly, um, you know, Marxist authoritarian sta- mm-hmm. states, because the, the function of history, if you're, if you're a Marxist, is to deliver you into power, because history, you know, it's the, it has a historical inevitability if you, if you in, subscribe to Marxist theory. So it's, you know, but history can be inconveniently perverse in not making this obvious. So you have to tell history to get into line and, and, you know, uh, deliver for you. That requires a constant effort to police and patrol history of the kind that we've seen. And I think the other thing as well is, I mean, there's a history, obviously, in China of using history politically that goes back, you know, far beyond uh, the the communists. So the uh, previous dynasties would sort of use history as a way of justifying their rule and why they were better than the last lot, effectively. Um, And it has a kind of moral force that perhaps it doesn't have in other places. But I think also there's something quite simple about it, in a way, when it comes, for example, to why China still embraces Mao. I mean, it's it's partly people always say it's the Lenin and Stalin problem that you can't differentiate. You only have Mao. So if you jettison him, what are you left with? But it seems to me even simpler than that, in a sense, which is that once you allow people to judge the past uh, and previous political leaders, you are implicitly granting them the right to judge you. That's a a fascinating idea. That's probably all we're going to have time for today. But thank you so much, Tanya and Isabel, for joining us. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, then do grab a copy of the latest issue of Prospect magazine, which includes Isabel's excellent review of Tanya's book, as well as writing by Rosie Holt, Bill McKibben and many more. Goodbye and listen out for the next episode of the Prospect podcast next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.